I appreciate Kyle's introduction a moment ago, and I want to let you all know that when I was first asked to come present these lessons, I, I started the process of thinking about lessons that would be indeed contemporary and timely, and I worked these up and tried them out on the good folks back at Georgetown there at Central, and so made sure they worked, and so now I bring them to you. So I had you all in mind for a good long while now, um, trying to find topics that were timely and uh, applicable, and, and while I was going through all that process of just, you know, keeping my ear to the, to the ground and listening, all these protests were going on, uh, all these different kinds of weird hats that people were wearing and protests and stuff, and I'm like, I'm not on Facebook, I don't follow any of that stuff, I was just hearing about it from my brothers and my sisters, and I'm like, something's going on here, and I thought maybe it'd be worth taking a look at the topic of, is God sexist? As Christians, we view God through a completely different set of lenses than atheists, uh, non-Christians, and the different cultures of the world. We would understand that. But as you may know, God has been portrayed in many distorted ways uh, in many different circles. For example, uh, God is said to be misogynic, uh, woman-hating, chauvinistic, patriarchal, and sexist, and the list just goes on along with having many other derogatory characteristics, these things are said by modern-day atheists and many others. And this is very common to hear these types of remarks. And and so I want to examine that charge today. I want to take a look and ask the honest question, is God sexist? Are these people right? Is God really a a, a misogynic, you know, chauvinistic, sexist being? Well, in my preparation for this lesson, I came across a quote, and it really bothers me to show this quote just because I can't stand this guy at all, but I'm going to show it to you anyway because I think this is important and you need to read this, and I will probably kill half of these words. Uh, but this is atheist Richard Dawkins. He wrote the book The God Delusion, and he says, The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. And that just got my blood boiling right there, but we kept on reading. Jealous and proud, he says. He's proud of that. A petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. Now, those are a lot of big words that I don't usually have enough money to pay for, but that's a huge charge against our God, the God of heaven. How is it that somebody like a Richard Dawkins and others can say that God is sexist or racist or vindictive or or, or genocidal or, or any of these other things? Honestly, most who level these claims are full of selfish rage and humanistic thinking towards God, a lot like an undisciplined child. To get these distorted views of God... One has to seek only to satisfy the personal desires that they may have and to take scriptures completely out of context. And that's how you can arrive at some of these types of views. And so what I would like to do in our lesson this afternoon, we're going to examine the question, is God sexist? And I want to take a look at their charges, their purported evidences, 
And then we're going to take a look at what the scriptures actually say. It's a really simple uh, format that we're going to follow today. And I think you'll find this lesson profitable. So let's talk for a second about why some consider God a sexist. What are their reasons? What are their evidences? Well, it's because they say God created Adam first, and then he created Eve. See, there you go. There's your evidence. He made God, he made man first, and then he made woman. And it said that Eve was created as a second-class citizen because she was created second, thereby showing God's preference for man and his lesser view for woman. That's actually a, a reason that is promoted. And then, of course, after Adam and Eve sinned, God told her that her husband will rule over you, Genesis chapter 3 and verse 16. Uh, so there you go. Here's another reason. God created man first, and then he's going to have man ruling over women. Again, this is said to show God's disdaining view of women as inferior, in that he said they would be in a submissive servant role to men. Then some people say one can see all throughout the Old Testament how God showed preference to uh, men through the Israelite customs and the laws that reflected women's inferior position to men. For example, as you can see on the screen here behind me, a woman, an adult woman was considered a a minor, you know, minor status, not minor in age, by, by law and lived under the authority of her nearest Male relative. That was just her her lot in life. Her vows to God could even be nullified by her father or her husband. We see there in Numbers chapter 30. You can go read that passage. If a woman had made a vow and the husband didn't approve of it, then he could nullify that vow. He could say that I will not let you be held to that and I will release you from that. And so, you see, she had really no rights. A husband could divorce his wife, Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4 teaches us, and and, and it can take another wife, Exodus 21, verse 10, and Deuteronomy 21, 15 through 17, yet the wife could not divorce her husband. A woman could inherit her father's land only, only if there were no other male heirs, and if only she she married within the ancestral tribe of her birth. Numbers chapter 27 And some verses there, and then over in chapter 26. See, all of these points, all of these that are made, and and there's more. These are just the ones that would fit on the screen uh, for you to consider. All these points are, again, said to show how God viewed women as inferior and without the same rights as men. But here's the question. Is that really the way things were? I want to talk for a moment about how God actually views women. What does the scripture show us about how God actually views women? The truth is that despite these assertions and these points and these evidences that are, they say, purported evidences that show that God is sexist, God is not sexist. This is, this is not to say that historically uh, the church has not treated women as inferior or that some Christian men have not, in fact, been sexist. Those things have happened, absolutely, but that doesn't mean God is. It's clear sexist behavior has plagued mankind for for centuries, maybe for for millennia. Yet God is not so and does not consider women inferior to men. We need to understand how God actually views women. He views men and women both as being made in his image. This is important for us to understand. Over in Genesis chapter 1, turn over there with me, and let's read in Genesis chapter 1. In the creation account in Genesis chapter 1, as we, we see it recorded here by Moses, we read in verse 27, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. 
Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. My friends, the woman was made in the same image as was man. They, they, they were both made in the likeness of God, in the image and likeness of God. There's no difference. Yeah, one was created first, but that doesn't necessarily mean that person's superior. Both were created in God's image. That's important. In fact, men, think about this one, men were made from dust and women were made from a human being. Uh, men were not given a more superior image of God with the creator somehow making women in a lesser image. Some would say, well, men are dirt, right? They started with dirt and women, they came from a better station. They came from humankind. But the fact is, men weren't given that superior station. They weren't given that better image of God and the women got what was left over. Eve wasn't somehow making woman in a lesser image. Men and women equally share God's image. Some Bibles, um, the Bible, I guess I should say, says that, that God made woman as man's helper, and, and not some, but they all do. I'm just trying to run my thoughts through my head. I haven't studied my Hebrew in a while. Uh, in Hebrew, Genesis chapter 20, uh, excuse me, 2, let me get my thoughts straight. In Genesis chapter 2, if you want to look there, in this passage, we, we read, this is one of the reasons they'll say women are in fear, because they were made to be a helper to man. They weren't actually created to be independent and, you know, the leaders, they were made to be helpers. And this is important because I think this might be the single greatest proof to show God's tremendous value that he has on women uh, is in the very thing that they say shows that women are in fear. Because in that Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18, the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Some have said that this proves women are to serve. They're created to be servants. They were just made by God to be laborers for men, yet God was not creating the female as a servant or as an assistant to the male. No, the Hebrew word translated as helper is azer. And because I, I, I'm from Kentucky, azer comes out as easer when I start saying it a bunch. So easer is just easier for me to say. Uh, my wife makes a joke that she's the easer and I'm the geezer. Now, I don't know if I like that or not, but it's easy to remember. It's pronounced Azer, E-Z-E-R, uh, and it's a Hebrew word that means one who surrounds, protects, or aids. This is the word that is used in Genesis 2 and verse 18. It denotes a specific role, someone who protects, surrounds, and aids. To help you understand what woman was created to do, who she was created to be, we need to see how else this word is used in Old Testament Scripture. I want you to notice some examples. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 49. In Genesis 49, I need you to see all of these. If you don't want to turn to every single one, at least write them down in the little outlines that are provided for you uh, and go look them up a little bit later. And in Genesis chapter 49 and verse 25 Here we see Jacob's last words. He's speaking to his sons here, and he uses the word in verse 25. He says, by the God of your father who will azer you, help you. The exact same word in the Hebrew is found right here referencing God. Stop and think about it for a second. Let that one soak in for just a minute. God created woman to be a helper, an azer. Jacob said God was his helper. 
Let me show you another one. Exodus chapter 18. Turn over to Exodus 18 and we see in verse 4. Here where Moses is, is naming one of his sons. And it says, and the name of the other was Eliezer. We say Eliezer, but Eliezer. You see that, that there in that name, Eli, El, which is a prefix for God. Azer means helper. So he says, literally the name means the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Moses says, God helped me. So I'm going to name my son. God helped me to commemorate that. That's how I would paraphrase that. God was an Azer to Moses. Go to 1 Samuel chapter 7. And we look in verse 12, and I do have these on the wall behind me. I, I do encourage you to turn to them and see them from Scripture yourself. Uh, but in First Samuel chapter 7, we see in verse 12, Samuel, to commemorate here, recognizing God's protection. We use this actual verse in one of the hymns that we sing. In First Samuel chapter 7, in verse 12, And when you saw that Nahash, king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall... A king shall reign over us, and the Lord your God would... That's 1 Samuel <laughs> chapter 12, verse 7. Let's try chapter 7, verse 12, if you don't mind. Let me get to the right spot. I could just read it off the screen. <laughs> that makes it a whole lot easier, doesn't it? Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. Azer, you see it again, saying, thus far the Lord has helped me. We sing, here I raise my Ebenezer, hither by thy help I've come. And we commemorate that in the hymn, and we see it here where Samuel was saying, God protected us. Let's set up a stone and name it, God protected us. He was the Azer. And David used it also over in Psalm 33 and verse 20. I'm going to read it off the screen. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. The word help is Azar again. Now, my friends, there's others. But what I want you to see, God is primarily portrayed by the Old Testament writers as the Azar. The one who surrounds us, the one who protects us. Now, to me... What that means is a helper is by no means a lowly servant role, is it? Rather, it's a lofty role to bring help to one who needs it. I can personally attest to the reality that I need the aid and the help of not only God, but the expert aid of, and help of a woman named Chris. When God created a female as a godlike equal to help the male, it was a highly esteemed role, not one of inferiority or servitude. When he decided that man was in need of a woman, it didn't mean Adam was inferior either. Women are not inferior for being a counterpart or a comparison to man. We just see they're both creating God's image. One's given a specific role as an Azer. Sometimes we have to stop and consider biblical truths and consequences. And I understand how sometimes people get to this idea that, you know, women have an inferior role because they were made to have to submit. Well, let's talk about this for a second. The consequences of sin upon Eve are another purported example of God being sexist. The negative consequences of sin had a far-reaching effect, far-reaching effect upon all humanity and beyond. They include... Spiritual and physical death for all humans, women's 
physical pain and childbearing, husbands ruling over their wives, and the cursed ground affecting plant life, making it hard for humans to grow crops. We could turn over to Genesis chapter 3. We can read all of these. In fact, why don't we do that? In Genesis chapter 3, we can read starting in verse 14, about five verses here that records this. So God, the Lord God said to the serpent in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 14, Because you've done this, you're cursed more than all cattle, more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his seal. There's the first messianic prophecy. We understand. Here's the punishment through the serpent. He says, to the woman in verse 16, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your, con- and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. There's the big reason, right? Then verse 17, he said to Adam, because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I, am, I commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground for your sake, in toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Now think for a second. This is what sin brought. We need to accept these negative consequences for what they are, but understand that God himself put a plan in motion, even before he created human beings, to help mitigate these consequences. To, he, 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 the plan he created was to send his son to offer eternal life to humans who were dead in their sin. We must accept these consequences, but here's the question. Must we suffer under these consequences? Think about this. Are we, as God's creation, to take the consequences of original sin as a punch to the jaw and just do absolutely nothing about it. Are we not allowed to use the ability to learn and discover to how to devise new and improved ways to farm the land and increase crop productivity? Are we not allowed to do that? The fact of the matter is farmers can bring forth crops in air-conditioned tractors now, not much sweat of the brow compared to in the days of Adam. You know, or or, or must we work the land in that same oppressive manner that Adam must have had to do? Are we not allowed to use the ability to learn and discover to find ways of, uh, 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 of, of safely reducing the pain in childbearing? You know, we have long since laid down our primitive tools and, and, and use modern farm technology to grow better and healthier crops while women take advantage of modern medical discoveries to ease the pain of bringing uh, birthing process and now have more options instead of just biting down on a branch and bearing down. I mean, we have more options. Yes, there are unavoidable consequences of sin that do not have to be negative experiences is what I'm trying to get us to. We must accept these negative consequences of sin, but we are provided means by God to accept them. In fact, we can find a peace in understanding that the status quo due to sin may be unavoidable, but it helps us remember the terribleness of sin in the eyes of our loving Creator. My friends, the same may be said about the consequences of husbands ruling over their wives. This was not God's intention from the beginning. This is not how he created them. But it's something that now is. It's the result of sin. 
God does not des- desire distorted, oppressive relationships and abusive marriages. Absolutely not. That is not what God desires. There's no love there. Instead, he desires husbands to love and protect their wives as Jesus does the church. In Ephesians chapter 5, we read there in verse 25, and I know you know this passage, but let's read it anyway. He says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish, So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does his church. There's no indication of sexism there or abuse of marriages. No, there's love and compassion and nurturing. Verse 30 says, For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, he says, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each of one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. God's order after the fall, after sin, God's order after the fall of man, demonstrates his love for us by providing us with a way to live in a manner that is pleasing to him. Though humans sin uh, and and reject him, he still makes provisions for us. Perhaps this this still limits the the freedoms, though. Uh, Even though God has made a negative consequence into a positive experience, Perhaps some people think, well, this still limits women's freedoms, women's rights, and women's lib advocates, and all these types of people cry out for. But it is a peaceful way for God-fearing men and women to accept this negative consequence of sin. But I've had people say, well, what about New Testament teachings? And there's the point on Ephesians. I'm sorry I didn't put that up there. That was in your outline. Somebody said, what about the teachings of New Testament, right? The Bible says women can't talk and they can't teach and they can't do anything. Well, the New Testament does say that wives are to submit their husbands, but this is by no means oppressive. We understand that now. In fact, right here in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 21, Scripture commands that we all submit to one another, where he says, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Jesus made the truth clear that both men and women are to serve one another over in Mark chapter 10. Let's jump over there and grab that real quick. Mark chapter 10, we read in verse 42. Mark chapter 10 and verse 42, going down through verse 45. He says here, and when he calls them to himself, he says, You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. The principle we see here is not to exalt ourselves and to oppress others. You know, just because husbands and wives serve in different roles, that doesn't mean women are considered inferior. I think somehow, somewhere along the line, we got all wrong on that thinking that there's different roles and somehow one's better than the other. I don't know where that came from. 
It is true that sin brought consequences to our relationships, but God doesn't want that to become a negative thing. He wants both husbands and wives to respect and love one another as he demonstrated to us through his son, Jesus Christ, and his relationship to the church while submitting to the the roles that God has appointed for them. We saw right there in Ephesians chapter 5, you can read verses 22 and through 24, you see the roles and, and submission where he says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is head of the, the wife, as also Christ is head of the church. He is the Savior of the body, therefore just as the church is subject to Christ, so let wives be to their own husbands in everything. We need to understand that we all submit and we all serve to please the Lord. Throughout scripture, we see that God elevated women to places of authority and godly leadership. Now, my friends, a sexist God would not do that. In fact, the biblical creation account in Genesis, if you do some study, do a little reading, I encourage you to do this. If you have some time, get online and do some reading of the creation accounts around the world. The biblical creation account recorded in Genesis is the only, to my knowledge that I could find, the only creation story of the ancient Near East that even mentions women. And it's mentioned as women as created in the same image of the same God who created man. In fact, women, the creation of women, you could even make an argument that it is perhaps the climax of the creation account when everything had happened and there's this one big scene, this emptiness in man, and here comes woman. They, they fill that role. Clearly, God has valued women since the beginning. So back to our original question, is God sexist? Well, let's consider a couple things together. As I've already referenced, God has elevated women in the past. In the nation of Israel, women were to be present at the reading of Scripture. In Deuteronomy chapter 31, we're not going to read all these. We just simply do not have the time today. In the nation of Israel, in Old Testament times, remember the bad times when women were oppressed, right? In those times, women were to be present at the reading of the Scripture. This was a highly honored occasion that showed God's inclusion of women in hearing his law. We can read also in Exodus chapter 38 and verse 8 that women served at the entrance of the uh, tabernacle. This was also an extremely honorable duty. Leviticus chapter 12, the first eight verses tell us that women were instructed to offer sacrifices to the Lord. Of course, this demonstrated God's recognition of the right of women to worship him equally. He appointed Miriam, Moses' sister, as a prophet. We read that in Exodus 15. Deborah was both a prophet and a judge. She spoke and judged publicly in the name of God, Judges 4 tells us. And Huldah, I just threw her in here because it fit on the screen. She was equally a prophet of God. She spoke on God's behalf in 2 Kings chapter 22. You know, it's clear, it's clear to me, that God did not regard women as inferior and unable to lead and speak for him under specific circumstances and under his authority. Yet there are, there are limitations placed upon women. And we have to acknowledge this. Specifically, limitations on women's role are specifically mentioned in relationship to the leading and speaking out in the assembly of the saints. Over in 1 Timothy chapter 2, let's read verses 9 through 15 here. In 2 Timothy, excuse me, 1 Timothy chapter 2, In verse 9, he speaks here of how women in like manner that they must adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold pearls, gold or pearls or costly clothing, but which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. Let a woman learn in silence with all submission, and I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. 
For Adam was formed first, and then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. And this passage just makes women libs advocates just crawl all over the place. They can't stand this. But women, first I want you to notice, women are expected to assemble with the saints. They're not restricted. They're not barred from the assembly. They're expected to be here and to assemble. They are expected to sing praises to God. They're expected to pray. They're expected to say amen. But since the end of the age of miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit, that which were necessary for the revelation and confirmation of the word of God, we see here that women are instructed to keep silent in the church and not to have authority over a man. Over in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, there's another passage that speaks to this. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, we can read in verse 34. It says, Let your women keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but they are to be as submissive as the law also says. And if they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is shameful for women to speak in church. What Paul's saying here is if a woman has a question or wants to speak, She's not permitted to address the congregation, but she must remain silent until she gets home and she can ask her husband and they can talk. And there were some reasons for that, and we don't have time to get into it because the word was actively being revealed. And when, when that word was being revealed, women were to keep silent. It was, they weren't to be speaking in the presence, and, and there's some reasons for that. But here's what I want you to see. This is God's plan not to suppress women, but to establish an order. This is God's plan. Over in Colossians chapter 3, we also see a woman's submission demonstrates her submission to God's will, especially in the family unit. We turn to Colossians chapter 3, and we can read in verse 18. Wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. There are justifiable reasons for this. Whether you like them or not, there are justifiable reasons. And again, the time today just doesn't permit me to get into all the background of that. But I want you to understand, we all must accept this as God's will for his people today. It is true that these passages are believed to be proof texts for feminists and women's live advocates. But in fact, they teach the very opposite. What they teach is that God loves men and women alike, and he provides for places for them. He provides their station. He provides their roles in his kingdom, but that their roles are different in the church as well as the home. You know, it's interesting to note that although critics falsely claim that God is sexist, many of those same critics failed to point out some leaders of other major religions I thought I'd throw these up here for your consideration because Jehovah God, he is so sexist. He's a bad God. He suppresses women. But in the book uh, entitled Apologetics for a New Generation, author and Christian leader, John Lynn Grace Fincher, she offers some insights about this, and, and, and I'll share it with you. Over in chapter 16 of her book, she points out that Muhammad, founder of Islam, had a disparaging view of women. In fact, she points out that the Quran says that wives are fields for husbands to seed as they please. Wives are prisoners having no control of their person and put women in an inferior position since God has done so. Now, that's the religion of Islam. Siddhartha Gautama, he's the founder of Buddhism. He abandoned his wife and son and concubines to go off and find enlightenment. He just left them. Charles Taze Russell, founder of Jehovah's Witnesses, reportedly molested his foster child, Rose Ball, and when Russell's wife filed for divorce, the court judged his behavior toward his wife as insulting, domineering, and improper. 
Now, you don't hear anybody fussing about these guys too awful much. I mean, you'll get a little bit of, of Muhammad, but you don't hear anybody fussing about these others. Not that they're gods, but they're certainly religious leaders. I want you to take just these three for a second and contrast it to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus affirmed the rights of women when he, we sat down and taught the Samaritan woman over in John chapter 4. A woman who had hardly any rights at all anywhere in the world, he sat down and patiently, lovingly taught her and shared with her the gospel message. Jesus affirmed Mary as she sat at his feet as one of his disciples. Jesus gave great praise to the women who anointed him before his death. Jesus, uh, to, to Jesus, women were of great value and were equal in God's eyes. But Jesus accepted and acknowledged their separate role. My friends, let's let's wrap this up. Relationally, God sees no human status difference between male and female. God is not sexist. As stated, husbands and wives definitely serve in different roles, but this doesn't make one of the roles more superior than the other. I just really don't know where that came from other than the arrogance of humankind where somehow men have better roles and women have lesser roles. Roles, the role, that's just the role you got to play. You got to have a man and a woman to have a marriage. You got to have a husband and a wife to have children. You got to have a mom and a dad to have a family. Both roles are important. One is not more superior or one is not more inferior to the other. Both are critical or else God would not have bothered to establish each. If they weren't both important, why would God have created both? With the exception of a few rare cases, both roles are needed in God's families and for proper development of spiritually-minded children. Is it any surprise today that Satan attacks the men in families? See, if you can break down the family unit, if you can cause men to, 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 to lust or to look at pornography or to, to become unfaithful or to become weak and not stand in the gap and serve their families and lead spiritually... If you can start there, which Satan always does, then the family unit falls apart. Well, if the family unit falls apart, the church will suffer as well. Because the family unit is how you have proper leadership in the church. Elders, the husband of one wife with faithful children. You see, it's no surprise that Satan attacks this way. I want to finish with a quote of the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 3. In Galatians chapter 3, You see it here on the screen. If you'd like to turn there, feel free to do so. He made it very clear, absolutely clear, that God did not engage in favoritism. And that's what sexism is. Being a sexist means you prefer one over the other. You have a favorite, if you will. You're showing preference. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 26, Paul says, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, There is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you all are one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Our God is not sexist. Our God is a God of decency and order and righteousness and fairness, and he has created an order and he has created roles and he expects us to fulfill our roles. And to accuse God of such things as being a sexist is a very disparaging accusation to bring against the creator of the universe and the author of our salvation. Who are we? Who are we as human beings with our finite minds and our vulnerable emotions? Who are we 
to bring anything to God's charge. Yet people do. If people would just step back and look at it and understand God's plan is perfect. Everything about it is perfect. And part of God's plan is that we all be one in Christ Jesus. Well, we understand what that means. To be one in Christ Jesus means that we are in Christ Jesus. Perhaps we as mere humans should, should cease our vain and, and arrogant efforts to judge our loving God by imperfect human standards. It would be like, when I think about this situation... It's kind of like clay pots, little little table maybe full of little clay vessels, little pot, earthen vessels, all lined up, and they're all gathered here on the table. And one of them shouts up, and, and they're all saying, telling the other vessels, you know, that they're all made by the same potter. They're saying that, that, that our potter is a poor craftsman, and he's shoddy, and he's not fair. And he Doesn't that say more about the accuser than the accused? My friends, we need to realize that God loves us. And he has set all things in order for our benefit. He has set our roles in the home. He has set our roles in the church as well as our eternal salvation by the death of his son. And you have that opportunity today. We understand that to be one in Christ Jesus means that we are in Christ Jesus. We have put on Christ Jesus. Like it says right here, all who are baptized into Christ have put on Christ That means we've clothed ourselves, we've enveloped ourselves, we have submitted ourselves, being fully immersed into Christ's death. As we talked about this morning, baptism, Jesus shed his blood for the remission of sins, and we are to be baptized for the remission of sins. So it's baptism is where where the grace of God meets the obedience of man, and that's where the blood is applied. If you want to be one in Christ Jesus and put away worries and doubts about things like, is God sexist? First of all, examine the evidence The evidence is clear. God is not sexist. But the peace that passes understanding is found in Christ Jesus. Well, when we're in Christ Jesus, that's where we have access to these great blessings like understanding and and peace and acceptance of those negative consequences of sin, accepting our roles and accepting who we are, that we're all important, we're all special. We all have an important part to play in both the home and in the church and in society and not get caught up with human judgments and and just the silly accusations against the Lord. And we're going to look at a couple more. The one that I want to kind of relates to this one is what we'll look at on Tuesday night. If you have the opportunity, I want you to come back Tuesday night if you're interested in examining the question, is God a genocidal racist? We'll follow the same line of thinking on that one. If you would like to and are able to come back tomorrow night, we're going to examine the question that is so often heard, used to be on the back of semi-tractor trailers you know, attend the church of your choice. The question is, can we really attend the church of our choice? We're going to look at those two, both tomorrow night and Tuesday night. You can come back. I'd appreciate it if you would as we dig into these controversial discussions, these timely topics. But understand, there's nothing more timely than your need to trust and obey. And that's what we're going to sing right now. Alan's chosen this song. You can go ahead and get your songbooks out and get ready for that. To trust and obey. There is nothing more timely than your need for salvation. Now is the time. If you have not submitted yourself to the Lord, if you have not been baptized for the remission of sins, Jesus said his blood for that. If you've not been baptized for the remission of sins, you do not have the saving blood applied to you. Which means if you were to die this very moment, you would not have a hope of heaven. It's like we talked about this morning. Without a hope of heaven, you understand you're sending yourself to hell. Because the only other choice to obedience and submission to God and the eternal home of heaven is Rejection of God, independence from God, and 
eternal punishment. Now is the time. The most timely thing is your need for the blood of Jesus Christ. And if you need to be baptized this hour, we stand ready to assist you. All that's required of you is that you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And believing that, you're willing to confess that faith before mankind today and to repent from your sins and your sinful life. Turn away from that independence that you seek from God and and your passions and your desires and, and all of that. Turn away from that. Turn back to the Lord. We can immerse you into water. It's right behind me. It's ready. It's clean. It's warm. I baptized both of my sons in a cold creek. We can do that too if that works. There's a pond right over here. Kyle doesn't mind. My friends, that's what's most timely. Will you come? Right now, together we stand and sing.